I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. And good morning. Welcome to What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. As you heard in our open, we're going to be talking mental health today with uh, Wayne Brown. Uh, Mr. Brown is a licensed clinical social worker. Uh, He has a a couple of very important issues that he'd like to discuss with us today. And obviously, mental health is an issue that is uh, becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, Wayne, first, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, I quoted at the the top of the the show uh, some studies from the... Kaiser Family Foundation from two years ago, 31.6% of adults reporting symptoms of anxiety and depression. I don't expect you to have the numbers handy, but would you say that has increased in two years? That has, I don't know that the number has increased. I think that the number who are truthfully reporting has increased. And the number of anxiety and depression in adolescents and young children is skyrocketing. And you told me uh, before we went on the air uh, that your practice um, is, uh, you said you, if you could, if you could physically do it, you could see 200 patients a day. Without an issue. So that shows you that there is a need that shows you that people are now seeking out help, which is obviously something, as you've already alluded to, is, is a lot different. And with that, though, you, you bring to our attention an interesting development of, of, that there are also people who are lining up, it seems, to get the training to become, like you, a licensed clinical social worker. But there is an impediment to that when it comes to the availability, the possibility to get training. Like, for example, your practice, you could probably utilize some of these people who are seeking this out, but yet they, right now, the way it works, health insurance would not allow for them to be compensated for for this. Is that Do I understand that correctly? Pretty much, Jay. So what happens is once you graduate with your master's degree, uh, a therapist, a clinician needs to have a certain number of contact hours with patients, which makes sense before you can get your next level of licensure. You're also required to seek a certain number of hours of supervision. In New York State, as a clinician, we are not legally allowed to pay for supervision in order to get our clinical license, which I think is a wonderful thing because if you're paying for supervision, you're also paying for the you're paying for positive feedback. Right. So the only way to get supervision currently is to be in a practice that offers supervision. Uh, Now, there are people who work in the large agencies, and if you work in the large agencies, they will offer you supervision. The holdback becomes with these larger agencies, they have the right and ability to withhold supervision for anyone who's not working with them full time. 
So if I'm a school social worker or I'm doing community reach, outreach, and this is what's important to me because this is my deep calling, then I do not have 40 hours a week to give to these different large practices in order to get the supervision to get my next level of licensure so that way I can operate independently. And currently under our system, the larger practices really have the advantage in insurances being willing to pay for those uh, counselor services. Wayne Brown is our guest. Wayne, I'm going to ask you just to maybe move that uh, microphone a little bit up toward, yeah, a little closer. You can even pick up the stand and maybe just move it a little bit like that. Yeah. There we go. Thank you very much for that. Uh, but uh, but and just to just to go back to that and try to uh, feather this out just a little bit, um, you're a, a, somebody who's in the training to become a licensed clinical social worker. They could go to one of these larger agencies, and then they would have that opportunity there. Uh, do I have that correct? Correct. Correct. You can go to any of these large practices and. If you're licensed and there's no marks on your license, they'll probably hire you the same day you apply. Because the need is that great. The need is fantastical. We cannot keep up with the need. And we're fortunate in Buffalo, like I was telling you earlier, that we have multiple large agencies in Western New York for people to receive services. Where it becomes... A problem is there are counselors who are tremendously qualified and tremendously able to serve their communities who are not able to see clients because they work as school counselors. They spend the majority of their day doing community outreach. They do community advocacy. So they don't have an extra 40 hours per week to go sit in a large practice where they may have a caseload of 150 people that they need to see 40, you know, 35 to 40 people per week and get session notes done and get treatment plans done and meet for supervision and, and, and. Not every quality therapist wants to or is capable of being in the rat race and there are still some really wonderful therapists out there who would do just fine in a smaller practice where they could see 10, 20 people a week and do their calling position. And then this would greatly decrease the mental health care burden in this state so that way people aren't going to the large practice for session number one today and then being seen for session number two closer to uh, Christmas. Right. So it, it, right now the, the reality of, of caseloads are at a larger agency, most likely, and I'm, we're generalizing to a certain extent, you could get in quickly, get an initial assessment, initial uh, um, appointment, but mo- most likely uh, it would be some time for that second uh, second appointment, that follow-up, that next part of the, of the therapy. When I worked in the large agencies, 
and they would we would all have certain windows of time where we were obligated to have walk-ins whoever walked in the door could be seen that day or whoever scheduled a walk-in appointment could be seen that day and we start with paperwork and the paperwork is exceptionally impersonal Hmm. because it's it's not clinically about bonding with the patient it's about filling out a sheet that you need to fill out as part of working with an agency. Give me an example of maybe an impersonal question that comes up in that. Considering, like you said, somebody walks in, they've taken that Mm -hmm. big first step that I'm sure every mental health counselor wants people to take. If you Mm -hmm. think you need the help, come find it. You're in this session. Now you're going through this paperwork. Can you give me an example of of an impersonal question? I mean, probably most of them are, but uh, (laughs) one that really stands out. So, like, if you were to come into my practice... I'm going to ask you your name. I'm going to ask you the name you choose for me to refer you as. I'm going to ask pronouns, and I'm going to ask what you came to me for. How can I help you today? Okay. And you have as much time as you want to answer that last question. If you want to take the entire time going through your life, you have that right. In a large agency, it's... We need to get to the next question. So it will be, hi, why are you here in like three sentences or less? Just enough to fill in a box. Okay. And then we'll get on to the next topic, which do you use drugs? Have you ever used drugs? Do you drink excessively? Have you ever uh, felt that you drunk excessively? So we're getting into it right away with these boilerplate questions. You're going to hit the ground running. And- when I was working there, I would try and build in couching devices for these patients because it's kind of shell shock. You know, here I am and I feel like I'm being interrogated, not in therapy. And then after 50 minutes, it's, oh, sorry, got to mm. go. Mm. See you in December. Okay. And the patient's like, but wait, you haven't helped me with anything yet. I know this is the time we have, and my next available appointment is December 14th. So what is what is in the way? What's the obstacle here right now for making this change? We're, we're training for potential licensed clinical social workers could come to a practice like yours, What's the impediment? Is it is it a state requirement? Is it insurance? What is it? Well, uh, this is the funny thing of it all, Jay, is there is no state requirement as to who can work in a group practice. If you pass your master's program and you pass your licensed master, master social worker exam or your mental health counselor exam, you are a licensed therapist. Okay. What the healthcare department or the healthcare world is saying is you are not licensed because you're not clinically licensed. And because insurance decides who they accept and who they don't accept, they have all the authority to say, yeah, you can hire John Jones to do therapy, but we're going to decline to invoice him 
right now the state is saying that we're interested in this law and it is bipartisan. It's not a right or left issue. It's not that there are more people who are Democrats that need therapy or more people who are Republicans who need therapy. <laughs> Everyone is asking for help right now. And the state is asking for people to prove that this is an issue they care about. I set up a uh, petition on change.org that I would love for people to go to. It's change.org slash mental health care equity. And I'm just asking people to go on to change.org, mental health care equity, and put your name down saying, I need greater availability for mental health care in my community. I need to be able to get my spouse, my child, <clears throat> my loved one into therapy because they are at some sort of risk. The amount of people who I talk to, Jay, who are really struggling, not just with depression and anxiety like you see in the commercials on TV, but really doing high-risk things to manage their emotions. Hmm. It's, it's growing phenomenally. And there is a way to get people help, and that is to have more help available. So just, just to, to clarify, like you said, that at change.org, you have um, that um, petition, but just to kind of make the connection – you know, make acts, make healthcare or mental health care more accessible, create more access. But what we need, but from what your perspective is here, there needs to be a significant change though in who can be billed Correct. for uh, for mental health services. What I'm arguing is that as a mental health care uh, practitioner, I have had to go through certain barriers in order to run a practice. There, there is individual practitioner licensure, and then there's group practitioner licensure. <clears throat> to be an individual practitioner, you need to prove certain things as far as licensure and whatnot. In order to be a group practice practitioner, there is a higher barrier to entry. Now, I was an individual practitioner. Once I became and got my group practice practitioner license, I had to re-credential with all my insurance companies under this new number. And so they had a second swing it back to say, we will accept you, we will not accept you. The insurance companies who work with me have said, we accept you as a group practice practitioner. And that means that as a group practice practitioner, I am authorized to work and employ other therapists. And I am authorized, if I was working in one of these large agencies, not only would I be authorized, I'd be required to provide supervision to people who need supervision to get their next license. I'm saying that if I have the ability to offer supervision at ABC Large Practice, and it's accepted by the health insurance companies and by the state ed department, then there's no earthly reason 
that a group practice practitioner, myself or anyone across the state, could not offer the same. We, we have the ability to employ licensed therapists who need supervision to achieve their next license. And just to put the greater point on it as well, um, in your particular case, now that you are an, an individual practitioner, mm-hmm. or you have your own practice, you also teach at the University of Buffalo in this field. So I, I guess that does help your qualifications, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> I, I do believe that adds some credibility into my ability to teach. Uh, and you know, I just want to touch on that point, though, is we're fortunate that we live in Western New York, but who are the people in Western New York who are most victimized by the mental health care shortage? It's not the wealthy parts of Western New York. And I'm not picking on people who have the ability to afford uh, mental health care. That's wonderful. But there's a significant portion of Western New York that does not have $2,000 a month to pay for a family health care plan. That's a high barrier of entry. So if they're stuck with going to the large practices, then they're stuck with when am I able to be seen is the next time I'm able to be seen. I think that all people in Western New York, regardless of what neighborhood you live in, because certain neighborhoods have more health care, mental health care access than others, I think everyone should be entitled to the highest quality mental health care. And again, expanding that out to the state, like I told you earlier, I used to live out in the Catskills. And the town that I lived out in the Catskills was extremely rural. As you know, Western New York has some rural areas too. And in these rural areas, there are licensed, fully licensed clinical social workers that can do practice. And the people who live in the community might not have the gas money to get from the exurbs out to Orchard Park or to Buffalo or to Niagara Falls in order to be seen by a licensed social worker or a licensed mental health care practitioner. If in this local community, the licensed providers, the clinically licensed providers, could hire people in the community who are licensed and need supervision that offers greater access to health care, not just in the rural communities where there's ingrained poverty, but also in the urban communities where there's ingrained poverty. Meanwhile, people who do have the access, they don't need to worry about whether or not I take their insurance because that's not a barrier they have. Accepting the fact that every case is different, mm-hmm. um, do you have a maybe a, a ballpark or a, an average? How often do you see a, a patient that comes to you? Are, is it once every couple of weeks? What is it? What is the situation? I have. I work with moderate to high risk patients in my practice, so people who are more stabilized, they will be once every two weeks or once every month. Uh, I only have a handful of people who are once every month, and they're getting ready to graduate therapy. Uh, 
most of my people who are moderate to high risk, I see either weekly or twice a week in some occasions. And so then the inference then is at a smaller agency, there might be a better opportunity for more frequent individual care at a larger agency. Um, unfortunately, they may not be able to uh, be there for that patient as frequently. At the larger agencies, they do not pay as well as the smaller agency or as the smaller groups do. And that's just a fact. What they're doing with the money, I don't know. It's not for me to know. But I do know what the larger agencies are paying. And I do know what the group practices are paying. And it's more than a significant difference. So that's another reason why people would prefer to work with a group practice is because we will pay more money. And that's a major reason why the larger agencies like it just fine that the healthcare companies have the ability to say, no, we won't pay for them. Because if all of a sudden group practices are able to pay large practice base rate plus 10 or $20 an hour, who's going to want to stay at the large practice? Um, just to also add to this, though, if there were more group practices with more uh, licensed therapists who are mm -hmm. working to under training to get uh, their, their uh, uh, LCSW, mm -hmm. um, it would also ease the burden on those agencies, right. wouldn't it? You're absolutely, absolutely would ease the burden because there's, there's more than enough to go around. I was where I had a lunch meeting yesterday with a fellow practitioner, not in my practice. And as we sat and talked, one of the things we talked about was that there's so much need for mental health care. It's literally impossible for any one practice to see everybody. And the more clinicians we put into the field, we're trying to put out a bonfire with a gust of wind. And it just doesn't work that way. Mental health is the most crucial health care that we have. Because while physical health is so much important is so important, mental health is absolutely essential. And that is something we talked about briefly that I know about personally from my own healthcare history that when I had medical problems befall me, my greatest disappointment is I was not a therapist at the time and my endocrinologist did not think with the scads of referrals he gave me to give me a referral for mental health care because that was back in the early 2000s and we don't talk about going to therapy because that's for those people and I think that that's changed that people are starting to recognize that everyone benefits from having someone to talk to we are going to talk about that as a matter of fact as we move forward here on what's next we're going to take a short break we're going to have more uh with wayne brown here on what's next this is what's next on wbfo 
WBFO wants to hear about your favorite Thanksgiving traditions. What are your favorite foods, rituals? Tell us your stories by using the Talk To Us feature in the WBFO app. Or call us at 877-997-9236 and leave a message. Then listen to WBFO during Thanksgiving weekend to hear about the wonderful traditions of your neighbors. Do you hear that? That's the Lullaby of Broadway. Join me, Anthony Chase, on a memorable trip to New York City, January 22nd through the 26th. We'll see five hit Broadway shows, Kimberly Akimbo and Juliet, Back to the Future, A Beautiful Noise, and Shocked. And we'll eat at Sardi's. Transportation, hotel, and select meals are also included. Space is limited, so don't delay. Call 716-630-3731 or visit wned.org travel. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk To Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. Joining us today is Wayne Brown, licensed clinical social worker. His uh, practice uh, in uh, Western New York is called Willow Grove Counseling. And uh, we got into a, a pretty in-depth conversation, into the weeds, so to speak, about uh, an issue that uh, Wayne has brought to us about uh, how um, training for uh, therapists who want to become licensed clinical social workers or beyond, um, how it works how it's paid for, and we'll get back to that, circle back to that a little bit. But during that conversation, Wayne, you brought, you really you touched on so many issues. And I lo- the metaphor I think that you used is uh, mental health right now is a bonfire, and we're trying to put it out with a gust of wind. Right. What What's behind that? What, what What is going on? What do you see? I mean, you you seem like you have a, you know, we've talked about your experiences. You were an educator in the classroom for a while and uh, got into um, uh, social work uh, after that. But uh, what what's behind this bonfire, not to use your term? It's more than just COVID. Um, I think COVID is a convenient scapegoat on all sides to say here's a thing we can blame mental health struggles have been part of mainstream society for years but we didn't want to talk about it because there's there there's a certain stigma that was attached to going to counseling. No one wanted to talk about counseling because if you went to counseling, you were not well. And there's for so many years, people kind of acted like needing mental health help was contagious. <clears throat> and if you sought help, if you sought to talk to a professional, that I have to distance myself from you. Uh, in today's day and age, I think while so many people love to disparage the younger generation for the way they self-advocate, 
I love the way the younger generation that's coming up is saying, we will not stand for toxic behaviors. And I am not well, and I need someone to help me with that. And I am struggling with uh, figuring out what I want to do for a career, or I'm struggling trying to figure out what my pronouns are. I'm trying, struggling trying to figure out who I'm most attracted to. I'm struggling trying to figure out reasons to live. And they're asking to speak to someone for help. And that is the most admirable thing about this younger generation is that they're saying, I need help and I'm going to ask for what I need. You were in the classroom back in the early 2000s. Yes. Right? So you're a teacher in the Buffalo Public Schools. Mm-hmm. Did you see that then? Not the self-advocacy, right. but the issues that we're talking about right now, were they there? It's just, like you said, the, the, there wasn't that sense of finding a solution at that time. Children who act out in the classroom are acting out because something else is bothering them. And the bigger the hurt, the more susceptible they are to misbehavior. Uh, when I was teaching in Buffalo, I had a I had so many students who would stay after school just to hang out. And yeah, I'd offer snacks and I'd offer drinks and whatnot. They'd be in the cabinet, just go help yourself. Because I knew if they were hanging out in my classroom, they weren't in a situation where they felt unsafe because they could come and hang out and they would study with me and they would ask questions and they would do a lot of test prep for uh, the regents exam at the end of the year, which is why my students did better than some of their peers in other sections. It's interesting also, uh, doing some research before I started researching you a little bit yesterday, I got off on a little bit of a tangent and ran into some some philosophers, modern philosophers, who were talking about the disconnect that's happening in the world. And one of the things that they pointed to was this what's in my hand right now, my smartphone and mm-hmm. social media and the, the constant flow of impulses that are coming through for people and obviously uh, for young people, just like adults. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no, you know, I'm, I'm sure there might be a, uh, an average amount of use that is different between certain age groups and such, but nonetheless, most people spend a good amount of time mm-hmm. on this. What about that? What about from your, your perspective? It's a reality. Oh, We're not going to change it anytime soon, but is it an impactful reality when it comes to mental health? I'm going to go against the grain of so many and say that the smartphone is a tool. And one of the things that I will provide to my clients who are struggling severely with their mental health, as well as if they have parents, if I'm working with younger people, I have a handout that I give them that have specific mental health apps that they can use that are run by healthcare, government healthcare groups across the globe. So there's no, you sign up and, oh, 
to get this service, you have to spend this. And to get this service, you have to spend this. They have access to journaling. They have access to bulletin boards. They have access to community. They have access to support. And when you feel isolated, that is the most painful thing that you can feel when you're already sad. So, yes, is does the cell phone offer problematic issues? Of course it does. But kids were having mental health crises back when you and I were kids, and no one even heard of a cell phone. So I think the cell phone, like COVID, gets blamed for a lot of things that's not entirely its fault. Can it be misused? Absolutely. But when you and I were in school, kids threw pens at each other. And that's a misuse of a similar tool. It's Can't imagine anyone throwing a cell phone, though. You'd be surprised. Right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, Wayne Brown with us, a licensed clinical social worker here having a, a, a conversation about uh, mental health this morning on What's Next. Uh, Wayne, you also brought up... Uh, Earlier on, I didn't want to get off of our topic because it was such a complex Mm -hmm. uh, portion of this discussion. But you brought up how you're finding people using high-risk behaviors to, I guess, for a lack of a better term, mask or to help ease some internal pain or suffering. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit when you talk about what kind of high-risk activities we're talking about here? So high-risk behaviors come in many different forms. It can be from substance use. It can be from alcohol misuse. It can be from self-harming. And I'm not going to go into details as to how these people will harm themselves. But one thing that I always try to explain to the families who are struggling with this is high-risk behaviors aren't about feeling good. I think that's one of the greatest misunderstandings. High-risk behaviors, whether it's using drugs, using alcohol, engaging in self-harming behaviors, it's not about feeling good. It's about distracting from the real pain. It's about, I don't have to think about the thing that's really hurting me. And It can be inside their head. It could be inside their world. It could be inside their home. For so many people, their greatest trauma lives inside their home. And more often than not, it's living inside their childhood home. There's an assessment that we use. Uh, It's called ACEs. And there's a tremendous TED Talk about ACEs. Uh, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And the more of these 10 experiences you have, the more physically, mentally, and emotionally debilitating it will be through the course of your entire life. And this includes physical and emotional abuse. It includes sexual abuse. It includes uh, substance use in the home. It includes breakup of a family. It includes incarceration. It includes so many baseline things 
that so many people in their lives just accept as normal. One of the other things that it measures is, have you grown up with someone in your family who does struggle with emotional health or mental health? And if it if as an adult, I don't treat my mental health well, it's going to impact my children. And one of the greatest things that I teach my parents is the greatest thing that you can do as a parent when you make a mistake, which I am a parent of three. <laughs> I make many, many mistakes as a parent. Right. The greatest thing you can do is offer a heartfelt apology to your children, explaining what you did that you felt was wrong, especially if what you did impacts your child in a negative way. And have that conversation. Because number one, it normalizes for the child that you can apologize. And number two, what it looks like to apologize and number three, it invests the child more personally with their parent. Also earlier, you mentioned how there are these apps that <laughs> encourage things like journalizing, yes. writing a journal. Um, what's the benefit of, of journalizing or of, of holding a journal for somebody, well, for anybody for that matter? So journaling, according to many, many studies that I've read, is it's kind of got this little secret benefit, especially if you're doing it in a tactile paper and pencil, paper and pen kind of way. Not just thinking about it or talking about it to a friend or something like that. Actually, okay. I prefer the tactile or communicating with a okay. peer, All right. communicating with a licensed counselor because your peers may love you and not know how to help you. And I try and get my clients to avoid what, avoid what we call trauma dumping on their friends, which is sitting at lunch and saying, <laughs> hey, don't you love when your parent does this, this, and this, and the entire table sits there with jaws agape. But the studies have shown that writing in a journal, writing the thoughts that you're experiencing has a similar mental health processing to talking about it with a therapist. Because when you're writing it down, it forces you to slow down and it forces you to be with the thing that you're thinking about. You know, when we type, in typing a journal, I will take that over nothing. But typing a journal is easy to do quickly and without thinking. When we're writing, it's deliberate. It's a lot of different brain activity. So your brain is processing the event as it's physically writing it out. So, how, yeah. how specific uh, would you encourage someone to, to write about such things? That's a really great question. I'm going to say that is a person-to-person -person thing. Uh, when you're dealing with trauma therapy, you have to be extraordinarily careful with 
moving too fast mm. because people who have had trauma and people who are managing their trauma through what we would refer to as unhealthy coping skills, uh, which would be some of the things we discussed earlier, these are individuals who are more vulnerable to engaging in unhealthy coping skills if you move too far too fast. So it's really, it's important to talk with a counselor who knows what they're doing, who can, when the client is maybe moving faster than maybe they should for safety, because realistically, someone who's got trauma who's working with a licensed therapist, you're seeing the therapist, if you're lucky, once or twice a week. That's best case scenario, two hours out of 190 some hours. And that's not a lot. That's a lot of time to be with your thoughts. Wayne Brown is uh, talking with us today. Wayne, a uh, licensed clinical social worker. Uh, his practice is Willow Grove Counseling. We uh, had an earlier conversation about a change that he would like to see in the, uh, I guess, medical uh, reimbursement uh, um, industry. Mm -hmm. uh, there, wow, there's a mouthful of uh, not much there, but uh, we'll get back to that uh, before we uh, 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 say goodbye. We've got a few more minutes to, to go here in What's Next. We'll take a time out and come back with more. This is What's Next on WBFO. Watch great videos produced by your public media stations online. Find Buffalo Toronto Public Media on YouTube and check out interviews by our WNED classical hosts, original productions from WNED PBS, and so much more. Birds, whether common or rare, delight me. That's what our new Now We're Birding and Enjoying Nature Club is all about. Oh yes, and the best is being with people who are also interested in wildflowers, animals, and of course, birds. Come along with us, won't you, Peter Hall and me, Stratton Rawson, as we lead monthly excursions to Tift or Rhinestein Woods Nature Preserves. To sign up, go to wned.org front slash birding. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we're back on What's Next. My name is Jay Moran. We're with Wayne Brown of uh, Willow Grove Counseling. Uh, Wayne uh, engaging in a lengthy conversation here about a variety of different issues when it comes to mental health. Uh, we talked about personal trauma. What about community trauma? How Have you seen that impact some people that you've uh, encountered in, in various ways? I mean, can that, how can that impact things? You know, we, earlier on, we kind of just not dismissed COVID, but we trying to put COVID in its place that it's become a kind of a, a catch-all for a lot of different things. Yet it was most certainly a, a beyond community uh, uh, trauma for sure. But we've seen other events as well. What about that? Do you see that showing up in your practice? There are so many communities that we could be talking about, Jay. Um, around COVID, we also had the Black Lives Matter movement that is a absolutely legitimate thing. 
And the thing about the Black Lives Matter movement is it existed before it was a movement. It just, no one was talking about it like mental health care for so many years. Uh, right now, there is an exceptional amount of dialogue going on in people who have emotional investment with Israel and Palestine. Hmm. And where they fall on that line is incredibly emotional. Um, many people have asked me personally, why have I not waded in with my thoughts onto that topic? And I don't know that my adding my value or my belief system to the conversation helps anyone. Uh, I believe, what do you think could help that conversation? It's a complex conversation, obviously. I believe talking. I believe ha finding topics that can be agreed upon. Um, I believe that this issue has been going on for thousands of years. And whether or not I post something on Facebook or Twitter or any of the other socials is going to remarkably impact what's going on in the Middle East is foolhardy. So I would rather be with my patients and be with where they need me to be and be with their grief and be with their struggle. And my opinion really doesn't matter to them. At the same time, though, your, your help matters to them. Yes. And if I, I offer my opinion, that is going to severely inhibit my ability to help. Is there a, a general piece of advice, though, when it comes to any type of world topic like that. That is so immensely, as you mentioned, emotional, very heavy topic, um, passion on coming from a variety of different directions. Advice that you might offer there. One of the things that I love about the Black Lives Matter movement is that it was actionable. I believe that when your heart is hurting, that you benefit from an action that you can do. And if you feel that there is no action, you feel so inhibited, then what can you do on a community-wide level? There are people in our community who are strongly aligned with the Israeli side who would benefit from people who are strongly aligned with the Israeli side to offer help. There are people in this community who are strongly aligned with the Gaza-Palestinian side who could greatly benefit from your help. If you have strong emotions and values and turning on the TV is tearing your heart apart, my goodness, turn off the TV and go help someone. Go be with someone who needs to be emotionally supported, someone who might just benefit from a hug or benefit from a sympathetic ear. And that will make you feel better and it will make the other person feel better. That intimate contact 
triggers chemicals in the brain that will offer emotional relief far more than doom scrolling or watching your favorite echo chamber on TV for hours and hours will. Um, Wayne Brown also gave us a, a very um, detailed, open look at his life through his, uh, his uh, resume, for lack of a better term. And one of the things, we, Wayne actually did touch upon it to a certain extent earlier on, but at one point in his life, he was uh, diagnosed with acrom- acromegaly. There we go. How'd I do there? Um, something I had never heard of, and I guess when you found out about it, you didn't know much about it either. I did not know much about it, and I actually do want to give a shout-out to the organization that I founded because today is World Acromegaly Day. Hmm. <clears throat> so interesting timing on that. Right. Uh, acromegaly is a pituitary disorder, uh, and what it does is it makes your body grow substantially large. It increases growth hormone and where some of your listeners might recognize is uh, uh, Andre the Giant, the wrestler, Kevin O'Quan, which is a uh, makeup designer, and also Ted Cassidy from Adam's Family fame. He was the butler. Oh, okay. Um, with this particular disease, it's classified as a rare disease, which means that like one in every 20,000 people will be diagnosed with it. Um when I was diagnosed with it, the social media was in its infancy. And I created a MySpace page. Hmm. And that tells you how <laughs> long ago. And I think 15 people joined. Eventually, as Facebook became more of a thing, I created a Facebook page. That grew exponentially. And eventually, one of the very wonderful and I'll never say this about too many pharma people, but one of the very wonderful pharmaceutical people who I worked with encouraged me. He said, for you to take your group farther, you need to become a licensed corporation so that way we can support you. Hmm. And once we did that, the advocacy became the sky's the limit. And when we created this corporation, one of the things that I put in the bylaws that I will say that I stole from my time working at Gilda's Club when it was on Delaware Avenue was that there is to never be a charge for membership in this organization because when I was sick and when I didn't have money, the only organization available was charging more money than I could afford, mm. which at that point was any money. Right. So I have I have a soft spot for getting mental health care, mental health services to people whose hearts are breaking and people who need help and people who need to talk to someone. Our group, our group is about support. Um, I I hate saying this because it sounds off, but before it became a national movement. And I love that it did become a national movement, but back years and years ago, I used to have a speech that I would deliver on the benefit of Me Too. Now, obviously, that the term Me Too has come to have a different meaning, Certainly. but at the time when I was talking about the benefit of Me Too, 
it was talking to patients about the benefit of talking with other patients who have this disease. Um, the, the diagnosis is so rare that talking to others normalized it. And you know, my family doesn't understand, my friends are not around anymore, but I have this group of people who doesn't make me feel crazy. The, the group aside, mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier how when you were diagnosed, and this is what, over 20 this years ago? 2004, so I was about diagnosed. 20 years ago. So, and you mentioned how your uh, healthcare provider mm-hmm. didn't even think about uh, sending you to a, a, a somebody for a therapist for what, if that opportunity had come, can you take us? You're the therapist, but you're also, in this case, you would have been the patient. Can mm-hmm. you take, tell, take us through how that may have helped you through? Well, at the time, I wasn't the therapist. I was the teacher in high school. And I can't tell you how many tears were shed, Jay. And I can't tell you how closely I came to doing things mm-hmm. that I couldn't undo. And... I love and appreciate my endocrinologist for saving my life with this diagnosis. And one of the things that I always pushed with my organization was that baseline recommendations upon diagnosis includes mental health care as first line of defense. People need someone to talk to. And I had no one to talk to at the time I was single and I didn't. I had friends, but I wasn't, it's a hormone disorder. So I was not a whole lot of fun to be around because I was angry and I would have constant outbursts. And because of that, I had friends, but they were limited in access. And loneliness is everything it's cracked up to be. Mm. Wayne Brown, I most certainly appreciate uh, the personal Discussions here for sure, and also the other uh, extensive discussion that we've had on on mental health in this particular hour. We did start off this hour, and we're coming down to our final 60 seconds or so, but what brought you here initially was a a concept change, which would be kind of uh, difficult to to paraphrase here to a certain extent, but you do have a call to action for people who want to find out more about this and who could probably make a a difference in access to health care or mental health care here. What I'm asking for people to do is go to change.org slash mental health care equity. If you go to that page, you can read all about in detail why this change is essential. And I'm asking you to sign our petition because our legislators right now are saying that there is value, but they don't know that there are people who want greater access to mental health care. And I believe that there are a lot of people in this community who do want greater access to mental health care. So again, it's change.org slash mental health care equity. Wayne Brown of uh, Willow Grove, uh, thanks very much for uh, joining us today. Thank you so much. This is What's Next. On WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown.
your NPR station.